Welcome to Narratives and Nightcaps, the book club podcast where we dive into the details of a novel, pair it with a fitting nightcap, and leave a little review when all is said and done. I'm Bree. And I'm Megan. Welcome back. (laughs) Welcome to a new narrative and nightcap. Woo! This one, um... I think it's going to be a little heavy. I think it's I think it's a little bit of a downer. <laughs> it is, and it's also not what I expected. I guess I went in really not knowing a whole heck of a lot about what this story was about, and yeah, it it is going to be a little bit uh, tad depressing at times. But what yeah. is it? What are we reading? Yeah, so we're reading Our Missing Hearts by Celeste. And um, this is her third novel. So her first two were Little Fires Everywhere and Everything I Never Told You, which I have personally read both and loved them. And so this one is, I, I just thought this would be another something along those lines. And it's not at all, <laughs> which is fine because it's still just such... I think I have already told you, like, I have just been so captivated by this book already, and we're only in part one, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> only in that first part. Well, we have a fitting nightcap for this, although I didn't think we were going to at first. I kind of <laughs> panicked, <laughs> and in my panic, I stumbled upon The Jungle Bird, which is just a tropical refreshing and red beverage. So bird and also as we discussed via text, red is an important theme throughout this novel or at least the first part. So we thought that this beverage would be very fitting for our missing hearts. And if you want to make it, it's actually fairly simple too. I will also say there are many variations of this. So do what you will with. Yeah. And a lot of like substitutes. Yeah. Variations and substitutes along with it, which is nice because then it's like user friendly. Do with it what you will. (laughs) You might have some of it at home. And if you don't have the specifics, you can probably get away with something you do have at home. Yes. So we did, I should say. Our sources for this were two websites. One is Dine With Drinks and the other is Gonna Want Second. So I'll link both of those in the podcast notes. But we went with one and a half ounces of aged dark rum, gold rum, or pineapple infused rum, which is what I did. I did the pineapple infused. I did did the dark rum, but I bet pineapple would be fun. It's good. Come on down. (laughs) And then three quarters ounce of Campari or Aperol. So I went the Aperol route. Sorry. I went the Aperol route. I could not find Campari and I even couldn't find Aperol for a second and I was in a panic, but then I found it. So I just had to go to a different grocery store. <laughs> I struggled to find pineapple juice, which is the next ingredient because oh. you need um, one and a half ounces of that as well. So I had to go to a second grocery store to get pineapple juice and then three teaspoons of lime juice and then sugar syrup or simple syrup I kind of went a little bit light on that just because I think it's already a pretty sweet drink but that's just me do what you want and easy enough you shake all of that in your cocktail shaker and then pour that over some ice into your glass 
and garnish it if you want. I didn't because I didn't, but we're recording on a Friday. So happy Friday and cheers. Cheers. And I did my fancy cocktail glass and I thought you were too. And then you didn't. <laughs> Sorry, I thought we were doing a different cocktail and then, but I did do my, my, I like big books and I cannot lie glass. So love it. Still very fitting. Um, also, I mean, I was a little bit concerned when making this that it wouldn't all fit into the glass, but it does. So there, there you have it. Um, also, I'm running out of simple syrup. So I think next time, if I don't buy any, I'm just going to do sweetened lime juice and just do the old two and one, which is what yeah. I normally do when I make mules. I just do the sweetened lime and call it good. So another variation for you. <laughs> I just, I like the beverages that you could kind of make your own and that if you don't have the specific ingredients, there are different things that you can do to still get the same drink. Like we don't need to overcomplicate it when you're drinking at home. Right. So I would say too, like, even if you didn't have like Aperol, but you still wanted that red color, do cranberry juice, do fruit punch, like do, yeah, just, you can, I mean, you could always do like a, like a sparkling flavored water that's, you know, colored or whatever too. I think there's a lot of options that you could use. Yeah. Some of those would make it like a little bit sweeter too. So like you mm -hmm. said, if you went with cranberry juice, then that would probably give you like a nice balance of the sweetness of the pineapple juice mm -hmm. with all of that. But there is like, make it your own. You do you. We're not here to judge or <laughs> say you have to follow it. Right. Exactly. But and also, we are not bartenders, so don't take our word for it. <laughs> We're not, but it is a delightful drink. It is. It is very tropical, which is, it's kind of funny because I feel like it's a, it's a fun, happy drink. And then, as I said, this book is a little depressing, so it's a good balance. <laughs> a little pick-me-up with the dark notes of this novel and... Yeah. I mean, it is still the, the jungle bird, bird for bird, and yeah. red throwing in that theme. And yeah, just balancing out the happy with the sad. Yes, I, I agree. Well, let's um, get into more about Celeste and what this book might be about <laughs> before we actually get into the book, uh, before we get into what the book is actually about. So as I mentioned, this is the third of Celeste Ng. Um, it's spelt N-G. It's pronounced Ng. Really funny. Her website even specifically says like line two of her personal website is like it's pronounced Ng. So oh, I love it. That's yes, awesome. <laughs> she's she's legit. Um, so her other two novels I've already read. I thought they were amazing. Um, Little Fires Everywhere you might be familiar with if you have I think that's on Hulu. Um, and it's a series made based on the book, um, produced by Reese Witherspoon, her production company, starring herself, Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington, as the two main gals in that show. Um, Celeste actually was a co-producer and like a huge affiliate of that series as well. So you know that it follows pretty closely with her book. Um, Our Missing Hearts is her, again, third novel. It came out uh, just in October of 2022, so it really hasn't been out for a full year yet. Um, and my opinion, but I just feel like the tone and the depictions of this book could not be more relevant to um, the culture that we're seeing today, um, especially if you 
rewind back to like the 2020 era, this is hugely paralleled to that time frame. Um, and I, obviously, like very unfortunately, but there is a lot of just misinformation, a lot of government opinions and rulings, um, and then especially a lot a, of prejudice against a specific cultural group. So I think we have seen and heard a lot of that. It's still going on, but um, I think that was probably a large inspiration behind her novel. Again, another my opinion, but I do feel like Celeste Ng is the writer of the American tragedy. It's very suburbia. It's very, you know, in your hometown, on your home, home base. But a lot of, I mean, even Little Fires Everywhere and Everything I Never Told You have a lot of dark undertones that could happen in your household anywhere. And so if you haven't read her two previous books, I really suggest doing that as well. Um, some fun stuff about her. <laughs> Ng grew up in Pennsylvania. She attended Harvard, like a freaking badass, and now lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, her work has been translated into over 30 languages, and she is a prestigious award winner, um, one of them specifically being the um, Asian Pacific Islander related awards. I could pull that up on her website, which will be linked. Um, I did not write down the exact name of what that award was, but just know that that was given to her. <laughs> um, New York Times wrote a 2018 profile on Ng, which dives into her personal life, um, her personal hobbies, and then a lot of successful influence that she's had over non-Asian readers and writers within with her novels. Um, and I've also included a link for that if you wanted to read more into that, as well as an interview that she had with Penguin Random House, who is her publisher, um, just about her writing style, her routine, why her work is important. And that was published in 2017. So if you wanna do a deeper dive on Celeste Ng, because she's really freaking awesome, then I think these interviews are a really great insight into her life. I'm definitely interested in hearing her or reading that and what she says about her writing style. Mm -hmm. That would be very, I don't know, I'm just curious to hear what she has to say and if she talks a little bit more about her inspiration, which I think, like you alluded to, is somewhat apparent and maybe yeah. obvious <laughs> in, this, in this specific instance, but I'll be excited to read that more. Yes. Um, and, and it's, I mean, I, I like glossed over it briefly, but it does go into like, you know, even her writing routine, like how she gets into the zone and like how she, which is fun. Cause I think that's some of the interviews that we've done too, like, what is your process? And so the fact that she sat down and talked through all of that too, is I think a good insight into what her day-to-day -day looks like. And it makes her real. Um, yes. I don't know. I was just having this conversation with someone too, and I know we've talked about it, but just sometimes publishing in general, especially when you've made it as big as Celeste Ng has and other authors, it seems like this, I don't know, surreal, but also intimidating area of the industry. So to hear her just talking about her day-to-day -day life and how it all comes together is really neat. And it does, it just makes it a little bit more real than yes. this famous author who's got multiple Reese Books Club books and a series adaptation and everything like that. 
Yes, agree. Um, her writing style, so it's a, it's a narrative, it's from a narr narrator perspective, so we don't necessarily know all of the inner workings of the characters, but we know a lot of the thoughts and worries and feelings and emotions specifically centered around Bird Gardner, um, who's our main character throughout the, the book. Um, we also, I found that so far the reading, even though it is a narrative, it's extremely um, descriptive in terms of like the tone of voice character are using, their dialogue um, and their facial expressions. So that like, even though you don't know everything going on in their head, you can read it and like see it on their face in a way, which I, I feel like we don't always get a lot of like facial expressions in narration because it's hard to convey that sometimes. But I think, you know, especially with Bird's interactions with like the librarian that comes up, I feel like her, I don't know, discussions with him became more obvious and more lifelike because you knew her thought process and like what was happening with her facial expressions. It is really detailed. It did make me think a little bit about Sally Rooney too in the instances yes. where the just the description of, you know, and out the window a leaf fell down to the sidewalk and I don't right. say it as beautifully, but it did make me think a lot of that they're not the exact same, but the detailed and descriptiveness of their styles was similar to me. And another similarity is there is no true dialogue. Like there uh, the, the like quotations around the dialogue that occurs. Like obviously people are having conversations, but it's written in that Sally Rooney-esque style where it's more like train of thought and you are just kind of stumbling upon it as a reader instead of having those, you know, perfectly set up scenes where this is happening. Yeah, I do think Celeste, though, her cadence with all of that is a little bit easier to follow than Sally yes. Rooney's, where I know we talked about with Rooney, it almost takes a second to get into it and to get a flow and a rhythm going. And I didn't feel that way with Celeste, but you're right, that is very similar with them as well. And it's funny that we're reading them back to back right. because <laughs> it's very, it's a different style than previous books. Um, so the book setting for this one is going to be between Cambridge, Massachusetts, and NYC. Um, I don't know that, like, Cambridge was specifically mentioned, but, like, knowing that there's, like, a school campus, I think it was mentioned, like, Massachusetts. I made that leap. I don't know if, did it, I didn't think it said Cambridge, but they talked a lot about, like, Harvard and, like, the square and all of that, so I'm like, well, maybe... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I I agree with you. I assumed it was Cambridge. I want to say it was mentioned once, but it's not very clear. It's not just a, a blank statement that says, and then in Cambridge one day, right. <laughs> it was something sort of in passing where you've, I wish I could remember where exactly it was, but you had read up to a certain point and then in just this little side note, it mentioned something about Cambridge. And so you think, oh, okay, yep, that's where we are. Right. Well, and then the fact that, like, as we get through this, he does travel to New yep. York. I'm like, okay, well, clearly he didn't start there and then travel there, but whatever. So um, a few fun facts that I pulled. Um, I know that we've talked about New York in um, such a fun age, so I try to pull some other different facts about that, but I'll start with um, Cambridge. So the first one I found, and I will state my sourcage, one is cambridgema.gov. And then the other one is, um, it's actually really fun. 
It's uh, from a CBS News article. They made like a trivia quiz on Massachusetts history centering specifically around Cambridge. And so I pulled some of these fun facts from CBS News trivia. <laughs> Cool. Um, so the first one is that Cambridge was originally called Newtown. Imagine that because it was a new town that people traveled to. My notes say, wow, super unique. <laughs> and it was originally intended to be the capital of Massachusetts. Um, it had, you know, all of the great qualifications. It's a port city. A lot of people were there, but Alas, it just never made the cut and was then renamed to Cambridge. <laughs> um, there is a neighborhood in Cambridge called Technology Square due to it housing MIT. So, you know, that's pretty damn prestigious if you have a whole neighborhood called Technology Square. Um, and then lastly, it is a sanctuary city known to protect immigrants. So the CambridgeMA.gov article that I pulled um, I had to look into what a sanctuary city was, and um, I really liked what they had to say about it. So I'm going to pull that up really quick. But um, basically, it says that as a sanctuary city, Cambridge affirms the basic human rights and dignity of every human being and provides education, health, and other services to all residents of Cambridge, regardless of their immigration status, which I do feel like is very important given the contents of this book. <laughs> yes, wow, that is uh, definitely related. Yes, for sure. Um, okay, a few fun facts about New York. Um, so it is also considered a, Cam or a Cambridge city, God, a sanctuary city, um, along with Albany, New York, Ithaca, and Westchester County. So again, these are some of the more immigrant populated areas because of these sanctuary laws. Um, I, I kind of kept it with the tone of immigration. So more than 800 languages are spoken in New York alone, uh, na to name a few, Chinese, Spanish, and Hindi. So obviously there are all different variations of these particular languages too. Um, and then the last thing that I thought was so interesting was that New York was set to have the world's first underground park called the Low Line, but it's been disbanded for now, not enough funding. But the concept was to create this underground park using like produced man-made solar power to like grow greenery. Like they wanted like trees and bushes and like legitimate plants underneath the ground and so there's a link for this as well um two of them i think one of them is ny.curbed.com and it gives like the um renderings of what the park would look like and where it's housed and it looked so cool and then the other link for that is the lowline.org which was the project website itself um and just like such a unique concept I mean, I just, I, I don't know why I stumbled upon it, but I did, <laughs> it has nothing to do with immigration, but it just seems like such a cool use of space, especially knowing how little above ground space New York has at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why they were doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's 
So interesting. It does look very cool. It looks very rainforest. Yes. Like, probably because it's a little bit darker too, or at least in the prototype. But, huh, that's so interesting. Yeah. What a unique concept. Those are just a few fun, fun other facts about things New York. You things you didn't know, for things sure. Things you didn't know. Things that you maybe didn't want to know, but now you know. <laughs> You can pull that fun fact out at your next happy hour. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact, New York was going to make an underground park, but they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Not enough funding. <laughs> that funding, it really, really gets you. Yes. Oh, love it. Okay. Well, so that's that's it for the background. Um, do we get into the meat of the, the podcast now? Let's do it. Okay. So this book is already separated into three parts, which I didn't figure out until I was already reading it. And then I was like, wait, we need to change what pages we're reading to. So today we're going to cover part one. And then within each part are, I don't feel like it's fair to call them chapters because they're not like numbered as chapters. They have nothing. It's just like a new start. So I'm calling them sections. So we are part one with several sections within part one. <laughs> Fair, fair. Okay, so part one, section one. Noah Bird Gardner has just been sent a letter. It is addressed to him as Bird, which he has not been called in a long time. Bird was the name his mother called him, and until his ninth year, so his ninth birthday, he was called Bird by everyone, despite outsiders wanting to shut that down. They, the outsiders, like school teachers, I think even his father, just officials were very much like, no, your name is Noah. You need to be called Noah. And his mom was like, F the birth certificate. His name is Bird. We're calling him Bird. <laughs> Bird is now 12 and everyone calls him Noah. And he has come to accept that at this point. So being called Bird by this letter can only mean one thing, that it's from his mother. And his mother, we find out very quickly, has been gone for the past three years. The letter has been inspected by PACT, which stands for Preserving the American Cultures and Traditions Act, and deemed acceptable to be sent on since all that is within the letter is a single page of paper with all different kinds of cats covering, quote, edge to edge. The back of the paper is blank and Bird is left feeling confused. It's as like, is the reader. As is the reader, because you're like, what? Who is sending him cat drawings? <laughs> what is going on? A friend of his, so sorry, this jumps around a little bit, but stay with me here. A friend of his named Sadie has asked Bird if he remembers his mom, and he does, but, quote, he didn't feel like sharing. Sadie's parents have been characterized as, quote, unfit to raise her, and she has been with a foster family ever since. Her mother was black, her father was white, but they were, quote, Chinese sympathizers, which goes against Pact. Bird's father was once a professor, but had been removed from his position teaching linguistics and placed as a shelver in the college library. I don't think it specifies which college, just the college library. Since Bird's mother was a person of Asian origin, or Pao, as they call them, because they jokingly say Kung Pao, 
Bird and his father have been under scrutiny and removed to a status that seems more controlled by the government, which is why her dad, his dad was placed from this prestigious linguistics professor to a bookshelver. Just so that they're more government control. It's clear that their life has been simplified and stripped away for the, from the uh, stripped away for them as they were also moved to a dorm on campus from their home. And Bird notes that his father, who used to teach, is essentially half the person he used to be, living in a mundane cycle of life. Every day he goes in at nine, he comes back at five, all he does is shelves books all day. It's just a very basic life and pays very little and they like never have food and just not great. While at the dining hall on campus after Bird's father gets home, Bird is always instructed to keep his head down, keep a low profile, and this is especially so because a disruption occurs outside of the dining hall. Disruptions were something that used to happen frequently during a period of time called the crisis. And we don't really know much else about the crisis, only that that's what it was called. Once the dining hall has been deemed safe to leave, Outside, Bird notices a red heart spray painted on the ground with words wrapped around it stating, quote, bring back our missing hearts. Bird's mother had been a poet named Margaret Mew who penned the words to our missing hearts. This soon became the anti-pact slogan that poured out all over the country and has been seen as terrorism with the news calling anyone who protests pact, quote, seditious subversives, traitorous Chinese sympathizers, and tumors on American society. Sadie views Bird's mother as a hero, someone out there fighting pact and showing a future where she, Sadie, can rejoin her family who's been taken from her. Bird's father has made it his mission to fully emancipate their name from Bird's mother and encourages Bird to fill in homework essays or anything involving pact with as much love and understanding and appreciation for pact as any non-asian american would so like be as patriotic as you can on paper we need to prove ourselves that we have nothing to do with your mom after homework once bird's father is asleep bird sneaks out um, to get his letter once again trying to remember a story his mother had once told him about a boy and cats he's waiting to see if he can pick up on his mother's voice telling the story but quote the voice he hears in his head is his own. Whew. Holy cow. <laughs> did that make any sense? <laughs> it did. Uh, actually, I think you summarized it very nicely. It's a lot to unpack, though. Um, not going to lie. But when I was reading it at first, I just kept thinking, what is happening? I will also note that I didn't realize this was a dystopian novel when we started it. Oh, yeah, I didn't either. So, uh, so that's probably on me because, yeah, my expectations were not in line with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was like, what in the Handmaid's Tale is going on? <laughs> oh, Handmaid's handmaid Tale. Okay, so definitely parallels to that. And I know we talked like, this is certainly setting up to be a bit of a cautionary tale. But I would also say that there are a lot of historical parallels as well. I mean... I'm uh, thinking, flashback to World War II. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to make it tie it to a book that we've read, like The Nightingale, and ever, mm -hmm. but with 
just a different culture and demographic of people. But I will also say too, then like at same period that there were definitely some similar things happening in the US. So it's like dystopian and future-esque and also history repeating itself. Yes. And I, I mean, I, so I know that in the past, um, Celeste Ng typically writes about like the 90s timeframe and usually it's books set in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which she has some ties to as well. So the fact that this is not 90s and this is not Shaker Heights and it's, you know, Massachusetts, it's somewhere where clearly there is a large Asian population. Um, that also threw me for a loop. Um, I just, I was not expecting the introductory to this book that we got, that is for sure. <laughs> I wasn't either. It is just, he's, Bird is so young. As so a he's only 12. Yeah, to think about a 12-year-old and he was nine when his mother left. I mean, to think about them going through something like this. Mm -hmm. And he's 12, but we know as a reader, we have some insight into his thoughts and feelings. And he picks up on things with his father and society very quickly, just like any other 12-year-old would. Yes. And yeah, it's sad to think it's like Handmaid's Tale, but a little bit not as, you know, graphic. Right. Yes, for sure. Well, and I think something else that we can kind of infer, especially like with relations to the crisis, whatever that is, this is something that's also been building up over time, which again, like a tie to the Nightingale where, you know, you don't just get this huge invasion. It's small little steps over time that finally brainwash societies into believing these government related things or these, you know, Nazi related things if it's the Nightingale. And so I, I left it out, but I believe also in section one, he even talks about pact going as far back as preschool where they simplify the words being a promise like this is America's promise this is how we're looking out for each other and then obviously as he's gotten older it's evolved into this lot more um I don't know what word I want to say just a lot more obvious that it's packed it's government regulated it's very um exclusive this is you know basically we only want born and bred American people to follow this trajectory and leave everybody else behind. Okay, part two. Bird has never liked, or excuse me, section two, part one. <laughs> Bird has never liked eating in the cafeteria with the other students in his class. And once Sadie arrived at his school, um, they took to sitting outside together until Sadie disappeared. So she came to his school, I think was there less than a year and now has left and we don't know what's happened to her. Today at school, he asks if he can use the computers during lunch to look up some information on cats. The school, it should be noted, no longer has books at its disposal and encourages children to use their smartphones or computers to do research. While Sadie was still there, she confronted their teacher about the books they had banned, but it was brushed off as, quote, storage limitations and basically given this simplified explanation that children shouldn't be exposed to 
bad ideas that could be found in outdated information. So anything about America's past, for example, that could be considered a bad idea or too much information about how history repeats itself. The guise and push is that all children should be safe and safety is the number one reason that selections of books and property have been banned. Bird attempts to research what he can remember about the cat story his mother once told him, but is coming up short. In a last ditch effort, he enters his mother's name into the search, but his teacher sees this and makes it a point to talk to him about how his life can change and he can prove himself not to be the quote mistake his mother, she doesn't say his mother, but he can be, he can get out of the mistakes that his parents have made is basically what she tells him. On his way home from school, another disturbance catches his eye. I think it should be noted that anything like terrorist in, in their eyes, anything anti-pact is always called a disturbance. So just let that be known. Another disturbance catches his eye and he joins the crowd that has gathered around it. Once again, bright, a bright red spectacle has been created, this time by winding yarn around trees, creating this web-like effect. Within the web are hundreds of little dolls that look like children. This stirs something in Bird and he remembers talking to Sadie about her family and the children that have been displaced from Pact. Her mom used to be a journalist that reported on PACT, and there is footage of her being arrested, and it's something that Sadie holds on to. One night, Sadie's mother and father were taken, and in hindsight, Sadie regrets growing so peacefully with the police officers when they removed her from her home. The next day, walking to school, Bird passes the trees that have been cleaned up to look like nothing ever happened, and he thinks of Sadie and also thinks of where to begin uncovering what's been going on. Another, another thing too, I mean, because we're just making all of these connections, this part made me think a lot about obviously the Black Lives Matters protests and, and that's just one example that's not going to cover all of them. There are plenty more and not just in the US too, but of journalists that were or are arrested for, for saying something or, I mean, just even being somewhere and talking about what they see and mm -hmm. what's going on has gotten many journalists arrested. Yes. Well, and that's the thing is, um, and I can't remember if it was in that section and I just glossed over it, but at one point, the station that Sadie's mother was working for was like, hey, you need to be careful and Sadie's mom was like, no, I'm just, I'm a journalist. I'm going to report on what's happening, right, wrong, or indifferent. It doesn't matter. I'm going to speak. Because she wasn't even necessarily giving her opinions. No. She was just talking about what's going on. And I think she was even talking about the displacement of children. And then, of course, karma, in a way, displaces her own child from her. Yeah, and I would say that that happens today, too. And it's discouraging even not going as far as arrest but just when people are so malicious and mean-spirited to journalists that aren't out giving their opinion don't get me wrong there's a lot of media that goes one side one way or the other but there are a lot a lot of especially on like a local level journalists who really are working hard to 
get the facts and tell a story or give someone a voice that doesn't have a voice. And, but this clearly happens today too. Yes. I also think like one of the most haunting things from that section is the fact that like this disturbance happens and, um, you know, people are around taking pictures and then the next day gone, nothing ever happened, nothing to see there. All you can see are like the scars on the trees from where they had to cut everything down. Haunting is a really great way to describe this novel. Yes. I think so. Maybe this is just, it's not a horror story. It's just haunting. (laughs) It is haunting. That's a good one. Yes. Section three. It it is expected that Bird goes straight home after school every day. But today he detours to the public library. Also, shout out to freaking librarians in this book because they are the best. And even in this fictional novel, they are the most helpful, wonderful people. (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. Shout out to them, all of them. They're amazing. And this also makes me think about some of the things we've covered in narratives in the news with people reporting books or wanting books removed from public libraries. So there's all of that, too. Yeah, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is so relevant <laughs> to everything happening. <laughs> um. He, Bird, is reminded of his father and a trip that they once took to the science museum where they saw a large tree trunk on display. His father taught him about the rings of the tree and the lifetime that they each represent. So this was kind of like in tandem as he's walking to the library, this thought process, because his father was in uh, a linguistics professor and he used to basically break down the words and meanings behind the words to bird. And one of the words he was talking about was Libra. So library, Libra, if this led them onto this tree tangent. I love it when he breaks down the words like that. Mm -hmm. Well, when Celeste has him break down the words like that, I feel like that was such a really neat ad in addition to the story. Yes. Well, and I love that like even later on, he does the same thing for Cantonese symbols, which is so cool. So we'll get there. His um, yeah, father taught him about the rings of the tree and the life that they represented. Next. <laughs> Inside the library is quiet and destitute. Very few people are there except a librarian in the middle of the room. He roams around attempting to find his mother's name in like the author stacks. And when he can't, he has this urge that he needs to leave the building. He's like, I just, I can't find what I need. I got to get out of here. And then um, he decides that he's going to try to do it when the librarian is not looking and he'll just kind of sneak his way out. He just doesn't want to be noticed. He watches her for a little while, trying to time it just right to make his escape when he sees her flipping through books. She finds a small sheet of paper inside one of the books and then pockets that paper and moves on going through the books that she likely needs to reshelve. She spots him watching and approaches him, trying to help him find what he's looking for, which is the book on the cat's story that he kind of remembers, and then obviously also his mother. In a final attempt, she takes him, so he's like trying to describe like, hey, I'm looking for this book, I remember this story, 
can you help me? And she's kind of leading him through the library, you know, going through Greek mythology, different kind of folk tales, you know, is it this, is it this? And finally, she takes him to the back of the library, remembering that it could be a story from a Japanese folktale called The Boy Who Drew Cats. When it can't be found in the library, Bird asks if she also, perchance, had a copy of the book Our Missing Hearts, written by his mother, but that is also gone. This kind of just wells up a ton of emotion for him. It's like his mom, he just is feeling like his mom's been erased from his life, basically. And this makes him cry. And the librarian then suggests that the books that he's looking for might be held in the college library as research methods and kind of implants this idea that maybe he should be looking there, that there's a good chance they could still exist there. She wishes Bird luck, and as he and he leaves the public library wondering, quote, how she knows his name. So she literally is like, hey, good luck, Bird, and never, you know, he never introduced himself or anything. So he's, like, taken aback that she knows who he is. Me too. I am too, yes. yes. All, we're all taken aback. Yeah, as much as I was saying, too, that he, for a 12-year-old, he's catching on to everything quickly and he definitely notices stuff. He's also 12 though. And this conversation, he's, you know, teetering in dangerous territory by even mentioning some of the things. And so that's just another reflection of being a 12 year old in this environment and in this situation and how you would, wouldn't be as cautious to mm -hmm. you. He does know, but at the same time, he's not he's more willing to cross the line because of his age. Yes. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I think that that's really apparent even like throughout the rest of part one is he, he kind of knows to like play this game and not reveal too much about himself or what his intentions are. But equally, he's very much like, I just want to find my mom. This is who my mom was. And for again, because that's like an anti-pact, a very, terrorist related name association um i think that he's equally you know he has to be cautious about who he's telling this information to he does but at the same time the adults are i feel less likely to to go where he's willing to go at least mm -hmm. the majority of them not all of them and i mean that being said you know, I think it's fair to say that adults ultimately have a lot of other responsibilities and people like his father, whether you like him or don't like him at the end of the day are just looking out for their child. And that's a very, very strong motivation to not say anything and not yeah. want to draw attention to yourself. But his, so I think his age has a lot to do with him being willing to say a few things or look right. at something at school, even if he's not supposed to. Well, and I think like it, the consequences for him are so much less severe than an adult. You know, for an oh, adult, yeah. you're losing your job. You're likely going to jail. You could be sent off somewhere else that we're not aware of because of these anti-terror or, you know, anti-pact terrorism type searches, asks, questions, whatever the case may be. For him, I mean, I think if anything, there, anything he does is going to be a reflection on the adult that he's talking to. And so he's never going to get in trouble for it. It's always going to be the adult that takes the fall. Yeah, which he 
doesn't seem to totally grasp. Mm-hmm. And I go, and you don't at that age. I mean, you no. don't get that. And I think, um, and I can't remember if it's maybe later, because he does have these flashback conversations that he had with Sadie. And Sadie was just a year older than him. I think they were in the same grade, but a year older. And she really understood a lot of what was going on. And I think even at one point, she she's like, Bird, don't you know anything? Because it's like, he knows a lot. And yet he's still so naive and innocent. And I think a lot of that is because of the protection of his dad. Like his dad has always tried to make it so that he doesn't have to question those things. Okay, lot, lot going on. Okay, section four. Bird comes up with a plan to just ask his father for his key card to access the college library. And since it's a Japanese folktale and not a Chinese folktale, how much could it really hurt? I don't think he understands the concept of Asian, <laughs> the all encompassing Asian. Uh, but that night, his dad doesn't get home until well after, I think it's like nine o'clock. Um, and his, you know, bird's like, hey, what happened? Where have you been? And his father lets him know that the FBI had shown up at the school and requested hundreds of titles that his dad had to pull. The thought was that a professor at the college was writing a book being, quote, funded by the Chinese on pact and therefore was considered a threat. And to me, this is just blatant, like, propaganda shit. Like, oh, we better investigate everybody because they're funded by the Chinese. And like, this is, like, again, this, like, very 2020 era of mentality, which is crazy to me. <laughs> they go out for a late dinner of pizza and run into a confrontation of an Asian man not being served. And this part just made me really sad. Um you know, there's this whole, like, basically the store manager's like, we're closed, I'm not going to serve you. And the Asian man's like, no, dude, I saw you putting pizzas in. Like, I'm just hungry. Here's money. Like, I can pay you and gets turned away. And it's something stupid, too, where he's like, we close at nine and it's not nine. It's like, yeah, it's like 8.55 or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, as the man leaves the restaurant, the Asian man leaves the restaurant, he says something to Bird's father in a language that Bird doesn't understand. And his father, like, brushes it off, kind of acts like he was ignoring him the whole time, and then just continues with their pizza order, and even, like, kind of makes a comment, like a joke, back with the store manager to save face, like, oh, can you believe these people, or whatever. Or maybe that's what the store manager says to him, and his dad is just like, yes. Crazy, right? Crazy world we live in. (laughs) At home, Bird kind of pushes his father a little bit more about you know, what the man said, or if he understood him. And his father reveals that the man was speaking Cantonese. Um, And again, his dad's just like, you need to stay away from anything Japanese, Korean, Chinese, etc. It's just, it's, it's not good. Like, it's a dangerous position to be in. I think it should be noted, because I don't think I said it earlier. Bird's dad is a white guy. So he is a white college professor. Bird's mother is of Asian descent. Therefore, Bird is a mixture of the two. Um, And I think at times he can pass as pretty white. Um, But I think at other times, like it's kind of obvious that he's Chinese or, you know, Asian. So just wanted to make that note. 
Um, okay. Uh, it's, it's at this time, you know, basically his dad's like, stay away from anything Asian related. This is not a safe place for it to do for you to do it. Um, and bird realizes at, you know, during this conversation that he can't just ask his dad for the key card. Um, he's just going to have to sneak it. He puts then the key card, um, his dad's badge into his backpack instead of the, um, I think his dad must carry like a briefcase or something. So he takes it out of the briefcase, puts it in his backpack the next morning and makes his way to the library. He remembers from when he was young um, and when his dad had kind of first started working there that uh, there was a door the staff who smoked would use to go outside without having to like officially leave the library property. And so he waits until someone takes a smoke break to then kind of sneak through that door and make his way into the stacks. Um, so when you're first entering the library, there's like nothing there. You have to request a librarian to go back into the stacks and get you that book. So he's now bypassed all that, is just in the shelves as it is. And a staff, again, staff only allowed to access back there. He sees a terminal where he can attempt to index the books that he's looking for. The Boy Who Drew Cats is a title that is still accessible, but Our Missing Hearts is labeled as discarded. He wanders his way through the shelves and the floors of books before finally finding the book. And at the same time, his father walks up behind him um, to take him back to security. So obviously his dad's like, hey, my badge is missing. I think somehow security was like, well, your badge has actually been scanned. His dad puts it together that it was Bird, goes to find him, etc. Bird hides the book that he had been searching for and then places it back on the cart to be shelved. Um, basically, his dad's like, leave that here. You can't bring it home, blah, blah, blah. Bird has only been in trouble one other time before this. Like, he knows he's in deep shit with his dad. This is not going over well. And the only other time he's been in trouble was actually with Sadie, where he was accused of being in a, quote, group that, quote, defaced packed posters slash propaganda. Police had been called to his house at that time, and his father basically had to show, you know, his loyalty of like, no, we're, we have nothing to do with this, disregard who his mom was, we are not those people. And it's only then that Bird realizes that his father is really playing off of fear, like his dad is afraid of what could happen. His dad is walking ahead of him on their way home now, clearly, you know, angered by the situation. And as Bird is distracted, he runs into a passerby who throws a slur at him and knocks him to the ground. But then the passerby runs off with a bloody nose because Bird's dad turned around and punched him right in the face. Don't mess with my baby. Don't mess with the baby. His father, now standing over him, reaches down to help him up. At home, it is reinforced to Bird the consequences of his action. They could lose their home. They could lose their dad's job. Um, worse, they could be separated. Again, this whole displacement thing from unfit parents. He and his father hug in that moment, and Bird asks again if his dad knew what the man at the pizza place said. And the man had said, quote, he's one of us, obviously implying that he is also Asian. 
His father briefly speaks of his mother and shows Bird a few Cantonese symbols in the dust on their cabinet so he can easily wipe it away. He remembers the book that Bird's mom would read to him, and then it all comes flooding back as his dad retells the story of the boy who drew cats. This chapter... <laughs> I'm like holding my breath. Like, okay. <laughs> Initially, you... I could easily see that you're someone thinking like the dad is just, oh, he's so passive. There's nothing of substance to what he's doing or what he's saying. And this chapter really brought out like how the depth of him and all of his actions, and not only for the reader, reader, but for Bird, because again, mm -hmm. he's 12 and doesn't actually, you have to sort of spell it out for him a little bit more to say, here is why I tell you all of this. It's not because I want to be mean or I'm trying to just be a dad. I'm telling you this because X, Y, Z, these are all of the things that can happen. And, and that's also true because even as a reader and not being a 12 year old reader, you are kind of like, is his dad really just going to like, does he really not care about what right. that's going on? And so I appreciated that this chapter gave you more insight into how it would really be in that position as a parent that and like I think that for bird kind of what you're saying it's also easy to dismiss the fact that like you know they the mom left them that you know she's no longer in their lives but the reality is like his dad loved her like I mean just because she's not there anymore doesn't mean that he's not thinking of her and hurting because of you know his loss of her even though she's alive she's physically gone and so I think that finally talking with Bird about his mom also again reveals a lot of what his dad is feeling and thinking during these really really scary times that would be hard is an understatement to yeah. <laughs> lose the person that you love but then still have to put on a brave face just to be able to protect your kid and right. act like it doesn't bother you and that you want nothing to do with that person despite how much you care about them and you can't let any of that emotion show he has no one to go to mm -hmm. well and yeah and I think that's the hardest part of again being an adult in this scenario is that you have no one to turn to you can't trust anybody I mean this is just again parallels to the nightingale of like it's neighbors turning on neighbors it is police being called to your house because of even the slightest disturbance going on like you cannot trust anybody so for him to basically be grieving alone at the loss of his wife he has no one that he can speak to about it because he has to protect bird and protect himself and i think in this part too i really appreciated the imagery that was drawn up for us of the confrontations that Bird's dad has had to have with authority because I feel like I mean it's something that I could see play out on a screen of like you know you have to act buddy buddy you have to kind of dismiss it you have to suck up to that authoritative figure and then I, I didn't mention it but at one point it's mentioned that Bird's dad was even looking over at his checkbook of like do I need to pay these people off do I need to and what can I do to ensure the safety of my family and my son it is written so that you can visualize it so clearly mm -hmm. it makes sense I haven't read little fires everywhere 
but it makes sense to me that her writing was adapted for screen because it's already so easy to see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those, um, I mean, especially like the connections and contact with authority figures reminds me a lot of like, I mean, I know it's, it's usually overplayed and typically like a comical parody, but just like confrontations with like immigration officers and how easily you can pay them off for things like that. Or, um, you know, even in like the Nightingale, I mean, I'm sure that if you spent a little cash, you probably could get a Nazi off your back kind of thing. So it's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and one last thing on that too, cause it, I, we've talked about it, but like another connection to World War Two and other times as well, but like the burning of books and, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many different novels out there that talk specifically about Nazis burning books and getting rid of art and creative works to prevent and prohibit them from being distributed. Yes, because everything has to be so contained, so controlled. Any outside thought is not a good thought. That's where those bad ideas come from. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right, section five. So this is, this entire section is the dad telling Bird the story. And I'm very proud of myself woo, because I wrote this all down from what I memorized from that story. So whoa, I didn't even have to open the book to write this part. <laughs> okay, so I summarized it as essentially a boy was fond of doodling and daydreaming. And it was something his parents encouraged despite the majority of the townspeople thinking that it was a waste and it made no money. The boy specifically loved to draw cats. A famine struck the town where the boy lived and both of his parents passed away. He went from town to town looking for food and shelter but was turned away though people would still give him small rations of food. One night he came to a town looking for a place to sleep when he finally got a door to open, an older woman told him that she could not take him in, but there was an abandoned place in town that no one stayed. It was suspected to be cursed, and she encouraged him that if he takes shelter there, he should, quote, keep to the small. While making himself a bed and a fire at this abandoned shelter, he noticed all of the walls in the place were blank. He began to draw hundreds of cats to cover all of the walls and then went off to sleep in a small cupboard or cabinet abiding to the woman's warning of keep to the small. The boy was awoken to the sound of a terrible fight in the night that went on for a while. He was terrified, but emerged from the cabinet when all was quiet. When he looked around, all of the cats that he had drawn were still on the walls, but had red splatter on their paws and mouths. The floor also seemed to have red splatter and cat footprints all over it. Then he looked around and saw a rat the size of an ox had been clawed to shreds. Is this a real Japanese folktale? I did not look that up, but it would not surprise me if it was. <laughs> I should have looked that up beforehand. Take it. I was curious at the time, and then you just reminded me, too, that I still wanted to know. Yes, I feel like this is very, like, you know... I don't, I guess I'm trying to figure out what the lesson is in the folktale, but it is very much like 
you know, you and you have protectors and you have these like people that look I this I I'm not articulating it very well, but this story definitely gave me goosebumps when I read it. I don't know why. Like it just I just felt like there is always this protection for this child like being looked out for. But I don't know what I don't necessarily know what the lesson is. <laughs> I'm probably not the person to ask. It's another, it, it, it is like you see the elements of protection, but it's also another, it's also just haunting like the rest of the story yes. is, um, given what happens and the blood and the such a little boy, all of it, like it's, and the abandoned house, it's another haunting story within the story. Right. And the fact that like, it's a large rat, which I think rat symbolizes a lot of different things throughout literature and media. But if you want to make that kind of leap, I think that that's also has a lot to do with what's going on in the story as well. <laughs> right. But just, I don't know. I think it's a lot about like the power of creativity mm -hmm. and art and what that can mean or do for a person and even the protection of that for an individual having ideas and being able to create something right and how that can potentially protect their mind and then for bird specifically he ties that story to his mom too mm -hmm. and so he's probably thinking about the protection that his mom may be able to provide. Yes, I agree too. And then, I mean, like even taking a step back, I think there's a lot to be said of, you know, the, the encouragement of the boy in the story, like his parents also going against the majority. And unfortunately they were the ones who died during this famine. I mean, it's, it's outside of their control, but I think there's a lot to be said too about like how- Not giving up. Yes. And not succumbing to to something that's wrong I'm not right. I'm not saying that eloquently at all but you know just because like just because they passed away it doesn't mean that these those ideas or the creation has to stop like he can right. continue all of that despite yes. what the majority may be telling him yes Man, yeah, there's a lot to the story. I think I think you could write a whole report on this story, but really? we don't have the time for that. <laughs> and no, we're we not book report people. <laughs> All right, section six. Or did you find out? Is that a real story? Did you? I didn't look. I'm sorry. I will look while no. you talk. That's okay. Section six. Thoughts of the demonstrations Bird has seen stay with him all through the night. He can't figure out what it all means, and even dies into the emotions that the painters must feel when they are sprinting out into the night to make their statements. I mean, he's even drawing on like the fear they must have before they do this huge symbolic thing. A memory then comes back to Bird about a game that he used to play with his mom. He was the boy in the cabinet and she was the monster. He would paint uh, papers filled with cats and hang them all over the wall. Then he would go hide as his mother would growl and paint the cat's feet and mouths red. The cabinet was in his own old home and it was just a small crawl space that only a kid his size at the time, I think he was like five, could fit into. 
He thinks then that his old home could be a place where his mother is hiding out. The home is abandoned and his father never sold it. So it's just sitting empty. And it is Bird's next move to go to the home after school. We get insight into how things have changed for Bird's family after his mother left. The neighbors avoided them. Some people called the police on them for, you know, suspicious activity. Over time, people left things in their home or mailbox that made his father nervous, such as like broken glass, you know, crude notes, probably slurs on things. Um, and so eventually when the shelving position at the college library was given to his father, his dad decided that it was time that they leave their old home and make their way to the dorm where they live now. Making his way to his old home through the overgrown weeds and gardens, Bird tells himself the stories his mother would tell him as though making this uh, journey or an adventure. So his mom would tell him a lot of obviously folk tales, but then also, you know, fairy tales of, you know, knights and princesses and kings and queens. So he's kind of adapting this mentality to, I think, make himself feel brave. He finds the hide a key and lets himself into the empty home. Making his way around, he finally comes to the cubby where he would hide and finds a small note tucked away inside with the words Duchess and a New York City address. Bird recognizes the handwriting immediately as his mother's. Okay, I have to tell you about this fairy tale because it's real. Oh, what? Okay, okay so this is essentially directly from Wikipedia, but I'll link it because there's a lot to it and it's very interesting. So we finally come across a real thing in a book, um, unlike Abby LaRue, where we thought- Right, where I'm like Googling, is this art real? <laughs> so The Boy Who Drew Cats is a real Japanese fairy tale that was translated by Lafcadio Hearn and published in 1898. So in um, what was called the Japanese fairy tale series. So uh, this probably actually goes into, it does have some like analysis and maybe provides a better explanation into all of it. But the origin is kind of cool. Um, it says that some commentators, this is like a direct quote from Wikipedia, trace the tale to the 15th century legends around Seshu. And it's been suggested that Lafcadio Hearn's version is a retelling and has no original Jap Japanese story, which is, quote, an exact counterpart. Thus, quote, in his English edition, Lafcadio Hearn retold it with a thrilling ghostly touch. Oh. And kind of goes on. But either way, I mean, the fact that it was published in the late 1800s and potentially has traces back to the 15th century, I mean, so versions of this story have been told for centuries which is really very cool. It is very cool. And so I'm, I'm assuming, because I feel like folk tales and lore like this typically are like a cautionary tale. But again, what is exactly the caution? <laughs> I see less caution in it than any of the themes that I pick up on. Yeah. Caution isn't, I think the overall theme of our missing hearts is a caution it's a cautionary tale sure but I don't pick up on a whole lot of caution in the boy who drew cats yeah it's just it's just a fun story it's a scary story I, I don't know 
No, I feel like it's a message, but I guess that's just not, that isn't one that I pick up on from that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, if anyone uh, looks into it, let us know. <laughs> let us know your opinion as well. Okay. Section seven. Or did you have anything else to say about bird finding that note? Sorry, I'm just like skipping ahead here. No, but it's the, this whole story is told a lot like a folktale is and the young boy and the journey and the adventure that yes. he's going to go on and he gets a clue and here's the clue that's going to take him there. So I do appreciate that style of this because it's just very reflective of Bird and his point of view and who we're really seeing most of the story through. Yes, agree. And there will be more of that as we continue because um, he'll have different, you know, levels of interaction that he has to pass through successfully and say funny. the right words and follow the right directions. So yes, this is this is all too. kind of a, a fairy tale. It is the whole thing. All right, section seven. The next day, Bird makes his way to the public library again. This time, he is not the only patron there. The uh, Bird's like watching a man. I feel like part of my notes got erased here, but that's fine. There's another man there, and Bird is watching this guy like, hey, come on, move on. I need to talk to the librarian here, and I don't want to do it in front of you. And the man finally makes a book selection, and then Bird sees him slip a small paper inside. The man then approaches the librarian, stating that he thinks the book needs to be reshelved, like hint, 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 dropping hints everywhere. It is clear that this is another message that Bird sees being passed, and then the man leaves the library. He says a little bit more detail to the librarian. I just did not include that. The librarian sees Bird is back again today and asks, and he asks if she can help him get to New York City. She responds that it is, quote, out of my area of expertise, but Bird is pretty insistent that she's the one that has to help him. As a last ditch effort, because she's kind of like, I can't, like this, I, I'm just a librarian, I can just give you information, that's all I can do. And as a last ditch effort, Bird states that he knows that what the librarian is doing with those messages and kind of is hoping that she'll call his bluff in a sense and talk to him more, just give him more information. Uh, the librarian then takes him back into the like staff area to ensure that no one will hear them and also wants to ensure that Bird will not tell anyone anything that he has seen or heard going on in the library. He explains that he won't. He just, again, needs help finding his mother, Margaret Mew, and also somehow pieces together that the librarian is trying to help find the children that are being displaced by PACT, which she fills in that there are a network of librarians or other people across the country doing the same thing. Bird starts to walk back his accusations, if you will. And, you know, it's like, hey, I don't actually really know anything. I was just, I just wanted your help. I'm not going to say anything. I don't really know what's going on. Um, and he doesn't really, he doesn't want to cause trouble. Like he just wants the assistance of this woman. 
especially because it's like it's kind of like she is giving him these hints like as a guide but not quite giving him the full story um and he also mentions that sadie is one of the children that might be within this network and you know she needs help finding her family and all he wants to do is find his mother Finally, the librarian is able to give him a little bit of help, but encourages him to find his own way to do it. The only advice she is able to give him are the train schedules and routes, as well as the knowledge that there is an automated ticket counter where he can buy a train ticket without having to ask any questions. She leaves him with the words, quote, what you do with this information is your own business only. And that's how we end section seven. Please let me emphasize, go librarians. Yes, like seriously. Because, okay, so if we take this as cautionary tale, folklore, whatever, she's like the fairy godmother. Like, let me help you. <laughs> librarians are gonna save the day. They save everybody. They did this, in uh, Midnight Library. She's doing it here. Man. This, the network though, and the keeping track and finding out where people are made me think a lot about the nightingale and keeping track of the children and their parents and having some sort of record that I know the nightingale was a lot about like we want to reunite but that they didn't know that that was going to happen it was also just knowing who they were and so very very similar in that nature I think so, too, because in earlier parts, it was mentioned that the foster family that took Sadie in tried to rename her. And yeah. so I wouldn't be surprised if throughout, I mean, just like in the Nightingale, just like in this story, that the families that are taking on these children that have been displaced from their original parents are probably being renamed, probably given new identities, new birth certificates, information like that so if if a librarian especially a, a network of them can help keep track of the real children that are affected by this and not you know not just have this fake name information that the foster families are giving them they'll probably have a better chance of hopefully reuniting them when everything's over if it will ever be over right but even she says you know there's it, it doesn't fix everything, but there's some level of comfort, even if they can just say, hey, we know where your kid is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and who they're with. Yes. Just for a parent to even have that reassurance would, it, it's better than not knowing. It's, yeah. not, it's not what they want at all, but it's better than just having a missing child out there somewhere. What I'm getting scared of is that we don't know where the parents are. We know that they've been arrested. But assuming that this is, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, I mean, it's across the country. It could be millions of people. And we don't know where they are. We don't know if they're being held somewhere. We don't know if this has evolved into like a concentration camp situation or like a work camp thing, or if it's just like they've all just been arrested. Like that doesn't seem right. Do we know for sure how widespread the whole thing is? Or is this like a handmaid's tale where it's the country is separated a bit? Or do we know for sure that this is the whole country? We, I guess we don't know. The The only guess I was making is that the librarian did say that this was like a, like a countrywide network, but that doesn't mean, I mean, it could still be an isolated, like, 
just the eastern United States is affected like this, but people are maybe being deported elsewhere. So across the country, are people helping? I don't, yeah, I don't think that we know just how bad it is yet. And we might not. I mean, it might just be an assumption that it is the whole, but I was just curious because I do think about that with Handmaid's Tale where it's different depending on which section of the U.S. Right, right. And I also wouldn't be surprised if it was just like coastal, you know, like east and west because of, you know, the ports, the access to the U.S., things like that. So, I yeah, I guess we don't know for sure. I was just making an assumption. <laughs> okay, section eight, and this is our last section for part one. Um, I do want to put a trigger warning on this section because there's some very unpleasant things that occur. Um, so it's uh, violence against an innocent person and an animal in a public setting. So I just want to, I'm going to very much gloss over it, but if you read this book, It is not great. (laughs) All right, section eight. On Monday, Bird makes his plan to leave. He pretends to have forgotten his lunch while his father continues on to work. He makes his way to the train station. Bird reflects that when his mother left, he never said goodbye. He was a kid, again, probably nine years old and too distracted by his playing when she left that he never even turned around. At 9 a.m. on that Monday, he writes a note with a few pieces of information for his father to find and hopefully understand what he's trying to do. He is completely invisible on the train as other commuters are coming and going and at last is on his way to find her, his mother, the one that he had waited for every night to see if she would return home. And there's this Super sad thing of, you know, classic little kid mentality, not fully understanding where he thought, if I just don't go to sleep, my mom will be home in the morning. And so just a really sad depiction of like him trying to keep himself awake, stay awake for his mom. And of course, she never came. After the train ride, Bird takes a bus over to Chinatown. So he is now in New York. He has studied the maps and routes of how to get to the address listed on the note and knows that he must go forward 87 blocks. And I think the book stated it's about five miles for this little 12 year old to travel. In Chinatown, he again feels invisible, but this time it's more so because he blends in. He looks like these people. He has this familiarity to them. He takes a look around him and realizes that everyone is hushed. They're speaking very little out loud. And also they are trying to appear invisible, you know, pulling coats on, hoods over, walking in small groups, just trying to be as small as possible, not draw attention. All of the signs in Chinatown are also painted over. And we find out that it's because the Asian street names and symbols have been painted off or crossed off and erased and only the English words remain. He walks for miles and realizes that he is now getting into the wealthier parts of town. Dry cleaners, you know, silks, department stores, grocery stores, everything on every corner accessible to anyone. Endless options are available and they are all showing their patriotic signs in the windows. 
suddenly Bird sees his mother on the street or someone he thinks is his mother. Upon a second glance, it's not his mom after all, but rather another Asian woman walking her dog. Just as soon as he sees her, a man approaches her and, in my words, beats the living shit out of her for absolutely no reason. And seemingly, I hate to say this, but breaks the back of the small dog to the point that Bird runs off screaming, crying, hoping someone will help, and everyone just turns a blind eye. He is certain that the woman is dead, but cannot go back, afraid that the man that he saw do this might be coming after him too. He is reminded that even in the fairy tale stories, his mother would tell him there is always an evil that has to be overcome. Finally, he arrives at the address from the note. He is in a very luxe part of the city and enters a home full of luxuries, including an elevator. Bert asks to speak to the Duchess and lets her know that he is trying to find his mother. The Duchess is a woman, quote, younger than he'd expected, regal, tall, blonde clipped short hair around her head. She is ultimately the one to take Bird to a destination outside of the city after Bird proves who he says he is. She also gives him very specific instructions on what to do at the destination that she takes him to. Finally, after following every step to a T, as the hero would in any fairy tale, we end this section with Bird's mother throwing her arms around Bird inside a safe house that she's staying at and stating, quote, Bird, oh Bird, you found me. The end. <laughs> Part one. <laughs> Almost could be the end. <sighs> um, but... As with any dystopian novel, I'm sure that there's more to the story oh, yes. that we <laughs> do not see yet. So can I, I'll tell you, so I've enjoyed talking about this novel with you, but it took me like a solid 25 pages to get, be engaged with it. I was going to ask because and I feel like I'm the opposite where like, as soon as I started reading this, I'm like, oh damn, this is another level. So clearly again, we have very different tastes in books, but that's why we work so well together. But I, I have been curious, like your first opinion now that we've gone through part one, what are you feeling? Okay, so I, I feel a range of things. Um, so it did take me a solid, I mean, 25 pages where I was just like, how am I going to be really engaged with this story? Mm -hmm. And, and then it started to pick up for me. I think part of that too, is just that once I realized it was dystopian, the dystopian novels and narratives that I enjoy are so far fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and that also might just be because like the realism of this is also hard to read at times yeah. so that could be a huge part of it on a personal level for me where I'm just like oh this is like this is actually possible I kind of right. I like the dystopia where it's it's so out of the realm of possibility that you you don't even feel that it's really dystopian because it's just a whole other world right um, so that was challenging. That being said, I find 
despite the fa the fact that it's darker, I do find her writing to be very, very beautiful. Every now and then I'm a little bit like, okay, can we? <laughs> Enough of the description. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> carry on. Um, let's keep this, keep it moving. But once I got into it, I, I do, like I said, I like how it's written. I like how we talked about how it's written like a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And this actual fairy tale is a huge component of his mom and his journey. I think it's really neat that it's from the perspective of a 12 year old boy, at, which is not generally something I would pick up. So I do like that. I am very intrigued by the story, but it took me a minute to yeah. get into it. I will say too, like I did zero background research on this book before we were like, yeah, let's throw in one from Celeste Ng. Yeah. And so as soon as I started reading it, I mean, I engaged right away, but I was very much like, whoa, this is not like any of her other books. So, I mean, two, two other books, this is not like two other books that she has, but it was, I mean, it just, it, it took me aback and like right away I'm paralleling Handmaid's Tale. Like this is, have you read that book? I haven't read the book. I have seen the show. Okay. Well, so, I own the book if you want to ever read it, but it's also yeah. like, I feel like it's, it's that, and maybe, maybe I'm low key, like a dystopia fan. I don't know. I didn't think that of myself, but, like but it has like, dystopia. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel like I need like the realism of it happening. I think that's what draws me in so much is like, we are seeing this today. Like this is happening just like with Handmaid's Tale. Like, I feel like it's easy for me to make that leap into like, okay, I see how this happened. I see what could or like even, um, do you ever watch Black Mirror on Netflix? Yes. Okay, well, that's another one that it's like, okay, I see that like this could be real. Like, I mean, that one's a lot more technology-based versus like government policies and just the freaking stupidity of humankind. But it's just a lot of these things, I'm like, this, this could be real, this could be happening. And I think that's what engages me the most with this book is that it's, pretty damn scary how real it is <laughs> and when I think that that's what scares me or like makes it harder for me to yeah so like, oh, no <laughs> no it's too close no, take it back <laughs> throw in a monster so that this isn't real <laughs> right yeah um no, so I think that is, but I, I am like, like I said, I think her writing is really, really impressive. And I do like the story once I got into it a little bit more. Yeah. It took me a second. Yes. I do feel like her style is pretty similar to everything I never told you in Little Fires Everywhere, just in terms of like the imagery, the de descriptions, the even like some of the dialogue, obviously this is not like the traditional dialogue style that we've seen in the past, but I I do feel like writing style is very, very similar and very good. Like she just is very descriptive. I mean, you can, you paint yourself there when she's writing, but yeah, this by far is, it's not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to read part two to see what's going to happen I I don't know part of me is kind of nervous about his mom I know I I'm kind of getting the sneaking suspicion that she's not who she's cracked up to be either yeah that's 
how I feel about it as well, which is also very in line with even the zombie-ish apocalyptic things where you sometimes think that even the person on that's going against the government or anything like that, you think that they're this powerful and inspirational person or group. And then there are, of course, layers that you mm-hmm. weren't aware of. So that's kind of where my head is at is, okay, he's found his mom, also his poor dad um, left behind and people, I'm worried people are going to blame his dad yeah, and his dad is going to suffer the consequences of his actions and going off to find his mom. But so that's where I'm very nervous. I'm very nervous and it's all like, it just feels possible. Yes. I, I agree. I'm nervous too. And you know, I can't like Celeste isn't known to have happy endings per se either. So I'll be curious where this drops us off. <laughs> I feel like our next book is really dark too. Maybe we need to reevaluate. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, well, I feel like we've been on like a, well, what, what one did we just read? Sally Rooney. You have a world, where are you? That wasn't super. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We might need to change our order a little bit, add some bubbles back in. <laughs> yeah. We'll take a look. We'll reevaluate. Yeah. We'll see. Otherwise, otherwise we'll just keep her going. We'll just stay yeah. on this path. <laughs> Just all the way through Christmas, we'll just be on a depressed spiral. <laughs> right. And then we'll throw in like a holiday book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, next week, join us again for part two. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Narratives and Nightcaps is a production of the Craft Co. LLC. Music for this podcast was created by Remington Haynes. Connect with us on our website, narrativesandnightcaps.com, or follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Cheers!